If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. That fight ground on for exactly as long as it seemed to need to go. And, you know, everybody did a fairly reasonable amount of damage each turn until... That's not the stuff people remember. They like to remember the crazy, like, you know, the roles that kind of just shift things dramatically. This interview is over a year old. For some unknown reason, Jason's audio came in very distorted on the files themselves, and I've done my best to clean it up, and I can tell you the insights we get from Jason made all this work worth it. I loved hearing how his various experiences and endeavors really led up and helped him to become one of the most respected creators in the business. I finally learned exactly what someone does when they're in charge of an RPG line, of which Jason leads too. His knowledge of the history of the hobby is stunning, especially knowing he was often in the room when it happened. And I apologize to Jason for taking this long to release what is really a great conversation. It took a year for my audio ninja skills to level up to meet the needs of this episode. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a great conversation with Jason. I'm Allison Arth, and when I'm not busy disagreeing with Craig Shipman about his feelings on Billy Joel's songwriting capabilities, I'm listening to Tabletop Talk. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we talk to the writer, designer, and world builder for tabletop and digital games, Jason Durall. He has worked on books for Conan 2D20, Dune 2D20, various Cthulhu Mythos games, and many, many others. He's the creative director for RuneQuest and basic role-playing with Chaosium. So Jason, welcome to the third floor. Hey, Craig, thanks for having me. So I hate to do this to you, but I always end up asking probably the number one most common question that you've answered a million times, which is there was a day where you knew nothing about rolling dice, creating people on a sheet of paper and then playing pretend. And then you found tabletop gaming. So I'd be real curious, Jason, if we can go back to the moment you were first exposed to it. Wow. Um, that would be a, a dizzying trip through the, the mists of time. My um, mother bought me a copy of Dungeons and Dragons. I think it was still in the first edition era, but it was not the first printing. Right. And it was one of those, it was from the Sears catalog. We were nice. picking out Christmas gifts and, you know, my mom said, pick stuff that you would like. And so I picked Dungeons and Dragons and I said this more than anything. I knew nothing about it other than it looked really cool. Yeah. You know, it had a wizard and a warrior fighting a crazy dragon on top of a pile of treasure and I was a big Lord of the Rings fan and um, uh, you know I was already reading fantasy and Conan at age like nine or ten so um, as soon as that came out I was uh, 
uh, just hooked. My mom bought it for me. I tried a disastrous game with my family, which was not at all well received. And then um, I sort of put it away. And then a year later, we were um, we'd moved to another city. I was um, hanging out with a friend and I looked across the street and a bunch of kids were crouched on their their um, the sort of rock garden and landscaped garden in front of their house. And they had all these books and papers and they were like looking for something. And I went over and asked what they were doing. And they said, oh, we're playing a game. And I looked and they had these tiny little lead miniatures and they were using their landscaping and rock garden as their oh, that's awesome. uh, exterior dungeon area. And I thought, can I play? And then that was, I, I think that was like 1978, 1979. And I've been, except for brief periods where I was, um, you know, uh, not surrounded by gamers, I've been gaming ever since. So preteen, you discovered Dungeons and Dragons. It sounds like, you know, the hooks, once the hooks got set, they got set pretty good. Um, what's after that? Did you stay with Dungeons and Dragons for a long time or when did you get exposed to something more than D&D? Actually, I stayed with Dungeons and Dragons for almost no time at all. It okay. was um, <laughs> it was very rapidly that I um, uh, I just realized that D&D really wasn't um, scratching the itch for me and my friends and I, we purchased like pretty much everything that was out. Somebody would buy it and we would play it. We were playing Boot Hill. We were playing wow. um, Gamma World. We played uh, uh, Top Secret. We yeah. were playing. Um, and then we hit the Chaosium game. Uh, see, and that was really it. Um, a, a friend of mine, she was really into HP Lovecraft. And so... I picked up Call of Cthulhu because I thought she might like that. And then I um, immediately got hooked into Stormbringer. And since I was a huge Elric fan, that just set me off playing that. And then it was literally like as the Chaosium games came out, we picked them up one after another. RuneQuest, um, ElfQuest, Worlds of Wonder, Superworld, all of those. Pendragon. And oh, then yeah. there were some other games that we played. Um, uh what was the game called? Yuzgarth. That, for some reason, stuck. We played it for a couple of years. Uh, Dragon Quest. Um, oh, yeah. A little bit of Marvel, superheroes, um, Psyworld, and some of the fantasy uh, um, fantasy games, Unlimited games, like uh, Bushido, and um, I can't remember the other that we played. We didn't play Chivalry and Sorcery, interestingly enough, but, um, oh, Aftermath. So, yeah, oh, I mean, right. it was, um, you know, I and I think we dabbled with uh, um, space opera. So it was just pretty much almost anything to come down the path. I think we played some Twilight 2000 and, you know, games as they came out. Chill, um, Time oh, Master. that's one of my favorites. Chill. Ghostbusters. I mean, Great it was it, these were the heydays of gaming where we could play like three or four nights a week. And uh <laughs> You know, we would literally have these epic binge game sessions um, in uh, high school, you know, for like the weekend where we'd play for like 12 hours. Of course, my friends, uh, their mom would come. It was uh, two brothers and we'd play at their place and their mom kept coming in. She's like, don't you want to go outside? It's nice. And we're like, no, we're huddled we're around, <laughs> huddled around a card table in their bedroom. They had bunk beds next to us. And we were all oh, just that's great. playing with little cracks of light coming in from uh, from the outside world. But yes, uh, 
So it's incredible to me, Jason, just the, the huge menu that that you sampled from during all of that time. And, you know, obviously when you're growing up and you're in high school and into college and continuing on and trying all these games, um, you don't have quite an awareness of where you were headed, right? Mm, and where no. you become as an adult. But now, now where you are and you look back at those times, are there any of those games in particular that you look back to and say, I think part of why I approach my work now is because I played X. Um, yes, that would be, um, honestly, it would probably be uh, Stormbringer more than any yeah. other because it was, it was such a loose, um, wild game. And it um, sort of threw, it, it really emphasized that game balance is um, not a a requirement for fun play and i think that the aspect of this sort of chaotic um aspect of the game no pun intended but the fact that you could uh just have wildly different experiences and it really opened my eyes to uh tinkering with games i mean like for example I would have at that time, I would have had very little idea how to, you know, tinker with D&D or Dragon Quest or Universe or any of these um, really sort of sophisticated, carefully balanced games, whereas Stormbringer just always felt like it was just wide open for (laughs) um, creative collaboration and um, sort of coming up with my own content. And it was very easy to subtract the system from the setting and do all sorts of other things with uh, with Stormbringer. Like before um, before Hawkmoon came out, I had already figured out how to role play in Hawkmoon's world and the tragic millennium and in both Stormbringer and Dragon Quest of all things. So nice. yeah, and, and I, I think that that was the big uh, the emphasis. And then the next thing would be uh, Pendragon. That would be the second most influential game for me and that it really taught me how to uh make mechanics that can mirror personality conflicts and um, emphasize that your character is more than just their sheer destructive power i am amazed jason how often pendragon is brought up by other designers that i talk to it is it may be the most common one um and it is the one that i've heard from more than few people that they consider it to this day the only perfect game ever made as far as role playing. Um, do you have a sense of why that is? Um, I think that it does not try to do everything. It tries to do one thing and it does it impeccably well. Yeah. And it um, it just says we are going to model Arthurian knightly behavior in this setting. And that's it. I mean, it, it nails it on every front. I mean, mm-hmm. uh it's uh it's economical there's no um what i would say no uh no it's not a bloated game it's not got pages and pages of treasure tables and um you know arcane formulas for falling damage and whatnot because it's just absolutely um it's clean and elegant in a way um and i think that that is it appeals to designers because yeah. you know most of them when they look at pendragon and like if you know you ask like what would you change um a lot of people are just like i i i wouldn't and for game designers to be saying that is <laughs> pretty significant i mean i might say well you know maybe the ranged combat is not quite 
satisfying, to, but I'm like ranged combat was not really the thing that knights were all about. And so, right. you know, it would be like saying that there's no, you know, crafting system or, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, that's not what knights do. They don't, um, try to build forges and, you know, try to come up with, uh, blacksmith shops and make money selling arms and armor to other knights. I felt like the spelunking rules were missing yes, from the yes, book. Yes, right? the surveying <laughs> rules. And I, they, they, the, you know, aerial combat is really right. not covered very well. Um, but so but otherwise, sounds, yeah, oh, it's, please, yeah, it's just, like I say, it's just brilliant in its elegance. And uh, I think that Greg, um, Greg Stafford, it just, he, he nailed it there. And I mean, I don't know if I would say it's a, perfect game but it's as certainly as close to one as there could be that's that's really really cool so if i'm hearing this correctly jason it sounds like in some ways stormbringer was kind of the first time where you got the inspiration and the uh permission uh to to start tinkering right to start doing more than just homebrewing campaigns but actually start um you know creating um, yeah. Does that sound accurate? That was, I mean, I was immediately trying to figure out new character classes and um, new types of demons and new sorts of uh, figuring out how to cobble together magic items and whatnot. Um, and then I just yoinked the system out of it. And I think I adapted it to uh, the Hyborian Age. I think I ran a Dark Age um, iron, you know, Iron Age, or it was Iron Age, not Dark Age, something loosely based off the Cormac MacArt and Bard books with uh, the characters were sort of Vikings and Celts running around nice. in uh, the uh, English Isles and whatnot. Uh, so, yeah, I felt that the setting was just really um, both the Morcockian craziness, but then you could just zip over to a parallel universe or to another of the million spheres and run a completely different game using the same engine. And I thought that that was pretty cool. You know, instantly I was trying to figure out how to put Jerry Cornelius in my Stormbringer games and, you know, <laughs> figuring out rules for Vibra guns and needle pistols and whatnot. And that's I awesome. was like, oh, it's actually quite easy and it works. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, so a lot of people listening, including myself, you know, we've meddled with stuff, we've added stuff here and there, um, but we ended up not becoming professionals, quote unquote, which I know <laughs> is not some magical term, but I'd be curious, Jason, looking back on it, when did you, when do you see that transition, whether it be, I, I fell into it or I consciously made a choice where you were going to share with more than just your table that you, that you were going to create for a much wider audience? It was um, Amber Diceless role-playing. I was living in Japan at the time, and I had a subscription to Dragon Magazine. I, I am a huge fan of Zelazny. He, I considered him to be to one of the towering giants in fantasy and science fiction. And the Chronicles of Amber were among my favorite uh, novels. And... Mm -hmm. um, I uh, one day I saw a little ad in Dragon Magazine for the Amber Diceless role playing, and I thought that sounds really cool. So I sent a check to the United States, and um, Eric Wujic uh, mailed me a copy, and then he called shortly after because to both uh, see that the package got to me, um, because he was just filling orders himself. It's I mean, amazing, he was, isn't uh, it? <laughs> yeah. you know, and. Um, 
And then he also was like, I just wanted to know who in Japan um, was, you know, ordering a copy of Amber. And I uh, said, yeah. And if you ever uh, I said, I I just got it. I haven't read it, but um, I'm going to read it. I'm taking a tour through Europe very soon. So I'm going to take it with me and read it. And I came back from that and I immediately sent this gushing fan letter to uh, <laughs> uh, Eric and said, um, if you are ever taking submissions for this game, I am, um, I would love to write something for you. And he said, well, what would you like to write? And I pitched him a few things and he said um, of them, half of one of them was something he would like me to write. <laughs> and so I was going to do a, a flip book of um, Rebma and Tirna Nogs. And if you know anything about the Amber setting, um, Amber is this eternal city in the middle of the, the universe of um, infinite worlds. And there's a reflection of Amber in the sky above that only appears at moonlight. And that's Tirna Nogs. And then there's a reflection of amber in the water below in the the sort of sea next to the castle. And that's called Rebma, which is just amber spelled backwards, kind of a kind of a silly joke on uh, <laughs> Zelazny's part. And I said I wanted to do a book called As Above, So Below that would be both Tirnanogth and Rebma. And Wujik said, I'm writing the Tirnanogth book, but why don't you write Rebma? And so that was my um, trial by fire to writing uh, an RPG supplement, like immediately jump into the writing a 265 page or 56 page book. And it was a little weird. Um, it was a incredibly rough experience. And the book still has never been published because um, <laughs> various, I mean, that's, we could do an hour just talking about sure. the history of the Amber game. But um but anyway, that really opened my eyes. And when I got back to the United States, um, I contacted a bunch of different other publishers. I was excited and I started doing some little freelance bits for Chaosium, for um, White Wolf with their Infobia magazine. And I, I hit the fanzines hard and um, yeah. like just peppered them with articles for, I mean, whatever game appealed to me at the time. Um, and it's a lot of games that most people have never heard of, you know, like Legendary Lives or um, Lost Souls or um, anyway, these kind of weird things I'd write. Like, I think I wrote some archetypes for cult and just various things like this appeared throughout um, a lot of different magazines. And then um, uh, it, it just went from there. And at one point, I remember... Um, I was sort of one of those people that always shows up at the booth and chats with the developers. And I ended up chatting with the people at Chaosium and um, they pitched, like I said, oh, Hey, I'd love to work for you and write something. And so they said, well, we're doing a D20 version of Elric um, called Dragon Lords of Melnabone. You want to write an adventure for it? And I said, sure. And so that was my first real, um, substantial credit other than work on shadow Knight for amber diceless and a few other projects like that so that was the first thing i wrote from soup to nuts that got published with um that was exclusively my work so when you when you create a write jason for for a game right like so you know i, I you talk to people and they say well i wrote for this and in many ways it can mean lots of different things right yes. um 
And, you know, looking at the, I don't know what the right word is, but the pillars of, of the, of the, of the hobby or whatever, you've got, you know, the storytelling, the setting, the scenarios, the mechanics. And I'd be curious, Jason, are, are do you, do you spread yourself evenly among all of those aspects and to take a holistic view of this? Are you drawn more to one than the other? Well, as a line editor, I'm, I have, uh, I don't have the luxury of choice. It feels yeah. like, um, for the games I'm working on, I do a lot of actual design, uh, or rather the, the games I'm managing. I do system design, um, tweaking systems or coming up with systems, coming up with mechanics, trying to balance things. And then for games I am just uh, freelancing for or just contributing for, those are usually just exclusively content. Got it. You know, it's rare that I um, jump in and say, you know, somebody's doing a... Um, you know, a new IP and they say, oh, but we need somebody to come up with the magic system. And um, I've done that, but it's it's pretty rare. Got it. Got it. So, guys, the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration and the methods for crafting their creations. And that's what we're going to do with Jason today. So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to actually take a short pause because Jason didn't just create games for the tabletop. He also created some digital works. So I want to find out what that's all about. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Dead Belt, a card-based space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. No one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to a coupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes. So as, as listeners know, you know, I, I'm, I'm drawn to guests for various reasons. I reach out to them. Jason has been very generous about making time to talk to us. But what that also does is causes me to dig a lot deeper, right? So I try to try to put together and do some research to get ready. And Jason, you're not the first tabletop 
creator that I've talked to that has digital work on their resume. Um, so I'd be curious, when did you first get drawn in to, to creating in that realm? I was living in Seattle around um, 2000. I had left Japan and moved to Seattle where I was working in desktop publishing for the medical publishing mm. industry. It's um, editing and doing desktop publishing and web development for all of these gigantic medical manuals. And there, I was feeling a lot of dissatisfaction with the job. Um, you know, it was really, you know, I was basically editing and uh, responsible for publishing seven 1000 page medical textbooks a year. And so it wow. was it was an insane amount of work. Um, and my brain was just crowded with all of this detail about um, hospitalization procedures and case management and all of this um, pharmaceuticals. And it was really nothing that I enjoyed. I mean, yeah. I, I loved the people I worked with. They were great, wonderful work environment. But I really just the the actual work itself, I was I'm not inclined towards medicine as a career. And so I, I definitely felt a little out of place. At the same time, I was in web development with the same company. And that was also where things were starting to get really technical. And um, mm -hmm. this was back in the days of go live and all this uh, like WYSIWYG uh, uh, web page development was a new thing. Right. You know? So um, and I wasn't super excited about it. And then out of the blue, some friends that I had met at an AmberCon, uh, Amber <laughs> Diceless role playing yeah. convention, contacted me and said, hey, do you have any interest in moving to uh, Austin, Texas to work on a computer game, uh, an MMO? And I said, why, I have a lot of interest in doing that exact thing. That sounds really cool. I never considered it as a job hop, but um, it sounded really great. And so they said, well, we'll put you together a... Uh, uh, a package and we'll we'll make you an offer and I said well if the offer is anything in this range I'll take it and so they said okay great and then they were having some funding issues with their uh, publisher so there was a little bit of a delay and in the meantime I started having some you know my spider sense wet up at my <laughs> the web company and I started going I don't think this is going to last very long because I was watching the the web dot com collapse in downtown yeah. Seattle of all these places that had opened up giant and then were just closing and collapsing. And many of my friends were web devs who are just suddenly, you know, going from these like uh, six figure salaries to suddenly unemployed. And I was Ugh. thinking, oh, this is not great. And then um, one day they summoned my department in at the uh, the medical publishing company and said, oh, well, I'm afraid we're going to have to let you go. And I was sort of, I was chuckling and they said, oh, well, you seem to be taking it really well. And I said, yeah, I just got an offer letter this morning for a job in, in Austin making computer games. So thank you for this severance check. And, um, Thanks and then, for beating me by a day. Yeah, basically. And so, you know, I had already even emptied my desk to the point where it was wow. a little straight. I knew everything was, you know, every day I was just taking a little bit away and then, some friends were even sort of wondering why my desk had become so stark. And uh, then, you know, uh, a month later, I was uh, living in Texas, working in computer games with uh, what was the last of the garage MMOs, a game called Shadowbane. And um, that was just a learning experience. It was the game was still in, um, I'd say, in the 
late early development where they had a playable demo but most of the the work needed to be done and i was the lead world builder for that Mm -hmm. so i had to learn the world building tools and in some cases actually help develop the world building tools with the programmers and it was also a case of just um you sort of asked a question about a system and that made you the master of that you know i was like what's our plan for sound and they said good question why don't you figure that out for us and um and you know the people i met in that job i mean oddly enough it was amber diceless that probably was the most influential force in my entire life and that many of the uh the people i met through that game and amber Khan have been lifelong friends and um, are people that i'm still in touch with and so you know and that's been oosh like almost 30 years so so yeah and that's how i ended up as a computer game dev so what's interesting to me about that jason is i mean you walk into austin texas with a backpack of experience playing and creating for tabletop games and now you're in a different medium but obviously you know mmos came from the tabletop right we're inspired by tabletop and we're trying to replicate that um how useful did you find what you had done before and what you had experienced and been exposed to before to be and how much of it didn't matter because this was something new everything turned out to be relevant my my major in um college was english um and a focus on um I, I sort of d- did the double thing where I studied both film communications and um, journalism. Yeah. And so mostly creative writing. And so I was both trying to figure out how to tell stories. And then over on the film studies side, I was learning about how to tell stories visually. Mm-hmm. And then through gaming, you know, it was all about coming up with exciting um, and interesting experiences. I had lived in Japan, as I mentioned, for six years teaching at a a university. And so I had this experience of communicating with people from another culture, you know, with this gulf of, you know, you have this filter of trying to get through to them and understand them. And then because the university was only um, open for seven months a year, but I was paid a yearly salary. I had two, two and a half month vacations a year, basically, and I traveled. And so I got to see some China, um, Southeast Asia, Russia, um, Europe, uh, extensively in America. So I think that um, being just a small town, rural Oregonian growing up in this, just being sort of massively exposed to the world in this incredibly short period of time um, and having a sense of wanderlust gave me a lot of... uh, sort of the aptitude for trying to figure out how to make games for people. And then, you know, I'd been into gaming and that translated really well into uh, building environments in MMOs, Um, you know, and being able to pull out, like I've walked in this castle before, try to do something (laughs) like this. Um, And then the other thing was the, the web development and editing was also phenomenally useful because, you know, in computer game development, you're dealing with very technical um issues you're dealing with um you know you're dealing with spreadsheets you're dealing Mm -hmm. with um access databases and all of this was completely just like par for the course it was exactly the the combination of creative and technical um i managed just to fit right in i mean i leaned harder towards the creative aspects than the technical but um in the early days it was uh it was a very easy transition 
when does you, when do you transition back then? So, um, or have you, I mean, do you still, are you still involved, um, creating, creating digital games or have you pretty much transitioned just to, back to tabletop as far I'm, as I'm right now just working in tabletop and I'm immensely happy doing that. Yeah. Um, I worked, um, almost exclusively in MMOs, um, and with some, uh, smaller, uh, uh, like phone games and mobile games when I was in Austin. Um, but over the years, um, my, my primary focus was MMOs. Now, um, I moved to Germany as a, uh, for, to Berlin here where I live as with a computer game company. And then, um, all throughout that time I was freelancing and doing, mm. uh, stuff, not because I needed the money, but just because it was fun. And, yeah. uh, so I really, uh, worked on all of these different products for many, many, di- many different companies. I did play testing. I did proofreading. I did, um, some editing. I did, you know, content writing, all of the above. And I just kept my toe in that water. And then when I ended up in Berlin, um, I had already done the big gold uh, basic role-playing book um, and a number of other projects. And so ironically, it happened that I was, I had just finished um, doing a big thing with uh, Modifius for Octung Cthulhu. I was sort of um, already line managing Conan at that time. Um, and I was talking with Chaosium and then um very quickly, the new owners of Chaosium sort of said, hey, do you uh, have any interest in working with us on a more or less full-time basis? And I said, at the time, the computer game company, I was having that spider sense uh, tingling. Uh, for those of you at home, I made a little spider sense wiggle on the back of my neck to show that something is up. And I knew that things were not going to go well at the MMO company. Because they had just gotten a new owner that was trying to do a bunch of, I would say, sort of shady stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I I worked it out with the Chaosium people. I worked it out with the the company where I got a nice uh, severance and uh, a wonderful exit parachute. And then I pretty much, like, I think I took two days off. And then (laughs) I immediately started working full-time with Chaosium and also... Um, working on the Modifius Conan game, which I was, uh, had done uninterrupted. And so that's, that it was a very easy transition. Now I did a few consulting bits here and there for some computer game companies in the first year or two, but, um, ultimately, um, I don't know. I really prefer the tabletop stuff. We had the um, the imagery of you arriving in Austin with a backpack full of gaming experience from the tabletop and then how that spread and influenced your work digitally. Now we're in Germany. You've now your backpack is full of all of that time working on MMOs and from a technical standpoint, from a creative standpoint, you now come back to creating in the tabletop industry. What was new? So how did working in that digital world change how you approached tabletop well process was one of the biggest Ooh. things i had learned because when you're dealing with computer game companies it's um you're dealing at a, an entirely different level of um production yeah. um, you're communicating with multiple um organizations within a company different departments and um you know, so for example, without my computer game experience, I don't think I could have ever, ever been a line manager, right. the notion of, um, but as a lead designer in um, MMOs, I was accustomed to 
dealing with both uh, QA issues, um, system design, narrative design, um, programming, writing system specs and all of that. And so I think that the biggest takeaway I got from that was both the the discipline of trying to figure out production pipelines and how things go from, you know, us taking something from just the the most uh, rudimentary idea into something that is coming back from China on a boat, yeah. you know, yeah. in a printed version. And so I think that's really the biggest takeaway I got there, but also um, sort of learning to stress test mechanics. Um, mm. You know, I mean, uh, MMO mechanics, um, they need to be tested on servers. You know, if somebody does something that the rules don't uh, accommodate, you you crash the server frequently or, you know, you can end up like corrupting a character or a database. There are so many things I've seen yeah. over the years, you know, where people discovered, oh, if I do this and I hit this character combination and slash and boom, then the server goes down and you're getting a call at, you know, uh, you know, 2 a.m. on a Saturday night to come in so that they can do a hot fix and you have to like edit and add that particular combination to the, uh, prohibited words list as a hacky solution to that just so people can't type that in you know Isn't so that yeah and i mean that was the kind of thing that i i learned was you know rpgs have a lot more tolerance with the game master yeah. being ultimately <laughs> the one who can decide oh well that that rule is stupid i'm just gonna gloss over that or oh that puts me in a catch-22 let's just figure out how to go past that and so um so, yeah, I think that MMO development is a absolute boot camp for um, what I do now. It, it really helped out considerably. So something you've hinted at a few times, Jason, and I find this fascinating because this conversation is very different. When I talk to players about game balance, um, it's different than when I talk to designers about game balance. And, you know, obviously within the constraints of of MMOs, you know, there's that's a, even another com conversation, right? Game mm -hmm. balance. Um, where strictly in the tabletop realm, um, how much importance do you put on that concept of game balance where all characters are created equal and things like that? And this, this of course, harkens all the way back to your Stormbringer days, right? Mm. Um, I personally, um, I think that I have a very, um, uh, there's an obvious sense of, oh, that's a bit unbalanced. But I think that the idea of uh, perfectly balanced games is both, um, it's an elusive, it's like the questing beast. You, you may never find it um, and it could drive you mad seeking it. And also, to be frank, the types of games that require that level of um, like precise balancing of um attack speed and um you know the equivalent of the dps and um whatnot mana regeneration um power cycling speed and all that that level of approximation in a game i find um uh just uninteresting i'm it, i'm not saying, a game you'd want to play <laughs> not really no yeah. and i i I try to play a lot of games. I play very technical, very crunchy games, and I play very woo-woo uh, storytelling games where, you know, everything is just a negotiation. Um, I think it's important to keep testing my tastes and doing that. But I, I find that, um, like, game balance is um, it's entirely uh, sort of mythical. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and in uh, the basic role playing book, I think I even addressed it at one point where I said, you know, like you can decide like all the characters will have the same number of points and they'll have exactly the same decisions they make. And let's say you come up with a game where you're all playing members of a crime family and then one of the players is a, a undercover detective. You've just created a vast imbalance in the game that is entirely narrative. Right. And you, but it, it ultimately will shape every scene. And that's, you know, um, that kind of stuff. And, you know, if you, you can give a um, unimaginative character or an unimaginative player a really powerful character, and if they don't know how to do that, you know, to manage that character, then you've got an imbalance. Um, right. Amber Diceless Roleplaying was excellent in pointing out that a creative and um, uh, enterprising character with uh, fewer points built on a much lower budget can run rings around uh, much more experienced and much more uh, powerful characters. And so uh, that was pretty emblematic for my uh, my experience of towards game balance and whatnot. I mean, I, I can look at a table of weapons and I can shave off a number here and try to decide if, you know, 2d4 plus 2, would it be better to make that 1d8 plus 1? You know, right. these kinds of very minute changes and understand how dice steps work and whatnot. But um, ultimately, I, I don't have a lot of interest in trying to create this sort of artificial balance. Yeah, I can tell you, um, as somebody who also plays a lot of miniature games, obviously that's uh, oh, uh, yeah. completely another conversation. And um, and I don't remember who said it, and I feel bad um, if I'm quoting you as a previous guest, but um, the, one of the things that struck me the most was, you know, when you think about the most interesting memories you have playing role-playing games, they were also likely one of the most imbalanced moments in that time. And I was like, holy crap, that's exactly right. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That sounds like a thing that John Wick would say. So <laughs> it, may have been, it may have been John. He's been on the show. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, I mean, they're the things where you rolled the crazy critical in, right. you know, like you, you sat down to, to roll and you're like, all I need to do is get below an 85 on this D 100 and everything will be okay. And boom, double zero. Oh, you know, everyone groans, but you've just created this amazing moment um, moment or, yeah. you know, the unexpected critical hit that yeah. uh, changes the tide of a battle in mid. I mean, even during our uh, our RuneQuest playtests, um, a couple of uh, it was a couple of years ago before the pandemic, one of the, the last face to face times our group met. But um, in the middle of a fairly routine fight with some fairly unimpressive dark trolls, our badass warrior maiden, um, Vasana, she took a critical to um, uh, the chest while she was uh, charging a troll with her on her bison with her lance and just punctured armor, took her down out of the fight instantly and the rest of us were like oh, oh no oh. and suddenly the the tide turned there and it became a, a scramble to try to recover from that uh um that major upset and i think that's the kind of stuff that people remember more than boy that was a well-balanced fight that, two hour combat yeah that that <laughs> fought that fight ground on for exactly as long as it seemed to need to go. And, you know, everybody did a fairly reasonable amount of damage each turn until 
that's not the stuff people remember. They like to remember the crazy, like, you know, the roles that kind of just shift things dramatically. Yeah, that the, the crashed the server, right? <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> um, so guys, we're going to take a, take a break. When we get back from this break, it's a game that uh, Jason has been a part of that um, I am fascinated from a fluff perspective as well as a mechanic perspective. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to talk about the 2D20 system for Conan. We'll be right back. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway. Enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. So my listeners know this, Jason, but I don't know if I've talked to you about it. Um, I took a 23 year break from role playing. Um, not a conscious one. It just kind of happened. Right. Um, and, and I still geeked out that time played miniature games and things like that. But about two years ago, I came back to role playing. And as you might imagine, a lot happened in those two decades. Um, and, uh, I was, I was amazed and, and there's been a lot of companies that have put out stuff that weren't, didn't exist when I had left and a lot of systems that were in place that I had no concept of. And one of the ones that caught me initially was the Conan 2d20 for a couple of reasons. One, it's Conan. Um, I'm a, I'm a fan from, from as a kid, I was like you, I read it as a kid, probably too young. Uh, that was when my I started experience as well. <laughs> Far too young. Um, and, and then the mechanics of it were maybe not new to people that didn't take the break, but for me kind of like blew my mind a little bit uh, when I first came across 2d20. So for those that um, are listening, can we give a, just a quick overview and an understanding of, of that system? Well, um, you, it's the 2d20 system. Ultimately, when you try to perform any action, you've got, you roll 2d20 against a target number that is based on a combination of stat plus skill. Um, there are a number of, um, talents that you can have that can add um, extra dice to that or extra bonuses to that um, number or give you a reroll or something like that. And then um, the system has these kind of unique uh, meta currencies called momentum and doom. Um, and they, these have different names in some of the different uh, 2d20 games, but for Conan momentum was just uh, um, 
it's uh, it sort of ties into a line from one of the sorcerers um, who's talking about um, success breeds success. And so the idea with momentum is when you um, get extra successes with a roll, because you're rolling two dice and one success is usually enough to do something. But if you get two and you can roll up to five dice, Mm-hmm. for anything so you know if you manage to stack all of your different talents and conditions you can be rolling a, a little mini fistful of dice and you can take the the extra successes and use those as momentum and there's a pool of momentum that everyone in the group can draw from and so that lets you um do some other various things like it might let you key special effects or um, pick up to roll extra dice, or um, do various other cool things with the the system. The meanwhile, the game master has a system called Doom, which is another point, a little horde full of like anti-drama tokens, if you will. They're like cruel fate tokens, and they can spend those to power NPC stuff. Um, to introduce complications and to um, to basically sort of like activate conditions or environmental concerns or bring in new encounter like a, a guard a guard captain can suddenly summon two new guards for two doom. I'm just pulling that number out of my thin air. I, I please don't check me there. <laughs> um, and so basically, what it does is it. Um, now, again, I, I say that I, I'm skeptical about the notion of perfect balance, but it gives the game master a um, both a, a sort of a, a budget for what mm-hmm. they can do in a session and also creates a sort of collaborative effort where players should understand that the game master is not their enemy, that right. they are, in fact, trying to it's like they're making a movie and this is how much money i have so here's where i'm going to bring in the big cgi monster but that means that for the two scenes prior we're just going to have normal looking humans fighting you right and so it sort of creates this idea that there's this sort of ebb and tide of um or ebb and flow of um action in the game like there will be quiet periods where the characters aren't earning a lot of momentum and then the players can decide to take doom and basically what they do is they they tell the game master hey i'm gonna take an extra dice here because i really want to succeed and the game master is like hey now i have a doom token and um and then you know there you go and then there's uh, the, the game gets a lot more granular than that but that's ultimately like the high level of how it all works i mean players also have fortune points which they have a few of which are like super momentum points basically And they have a few other cool features like, you know, you can uh, buy off all kinds of cool things or get insta successes. And, um, you know, it's funny, too, because, I mean, the whole idea of the Doom thing was um, I was first to expose that to in the Marvel Saga um, role playing game where you had five uh, suits and uh, of cards and one of them was Doom. And so you, you know, you drew cards every based on how powerful a character you were, you had a different hand size. And if you played a doom card to make up the points to succeed in your task, you were doing the game master kept the doom card and then could use it against you. And when we played doom, this was with a different group of uh, people. This is actually after I came back from Japan and I was hanging around with a, a very eclectic Seattle gaming group. Our game master literally had a um, a Doctor Doom coffee mug of like Doom's head, 
and that was the Doom Bank. And so whenever you played a Doom card, that's amazing. The GM would put those in, and then at the you know you were always very careful as players, and sometimes you've just got a handful of crap because you're like, oh no, I've got Doom cards, and if I spend a Doom card to succeed now. I'm giving this is this is going to be the GM's screw me card later in the game. <laughs> and so um, it was, you know, pretty funny overall to watch that mechanic where people were just like, I'm not going to do anything. And I was like, oh, you got a handful of doom. Yeah. And so, um, <laughs> you know, because you didn't want to give the GM any points and the GM, the mechanics say the GM needs to spend all the doom by the end of the session. So this is where you end up with the bad guy is just, you know, having his inevitable comeback or surprise counterattack devastating the heroes at a certain point yeah and you know the dull end encounters were the ones where the players managed to just starve the gm of any doom <laughs> but the cool ones were when the gm just had a fistful of doom and was ready to use it and so um like to me that was uh a very natural thing for conan especially yeah. i remember having a bizarre argument with a bunch of um interesting people on a website that i will not mention by name and they were like oh this doom mechanic has no place in conan there's nothing about conan that indicates there's this malignant force that is sort of present i i said oh well here's a quote from conan where he says don't gain the attention of Crom because Crom will send dooms against you. And I said, <laughs> is a quote from Robert E. Howard using the word doom and describing the game mechanic, is that enough to convince you? And, you know, crickets chirping after that. I, I like um, people, obviously, because this is audio, but uh, Jason can see my face. Like you started to tell me that. And I'm like, has they read Conan? No, no. <laughs> I mean, or they've read some particular abstract. Maybe they just didn't understand it yeah i mean part of what one of the many things that i love about howard's work was the concept of crime right yes. and this concept of the, the, it's a god you that, that you was not want to worship no <laughs> yeah. he's a god you you try to avoid thinking about it's really that's, you, that's amazing yeah. so jason where did where did you come in contact with this at first right so um was it was it at the very beginning had it had work been done like where where did you get into the sphere of of this game ground zero um no i kidding. was working on well because i had worked with um uh uh on chaos it, it's like weird how these these things just sort of chain um <laughs> because i had worked on basic role playing there was a point where um i was contacted by chris birch at modifius and they had just picked up the license for mutant chronicles and they were wondering if they wanted to do a BRP adaptation of that mm. instead of their 2D20 system because 2D20 didn't really exist at that time. And so Chris asked me if I would be the, um, the sort of like father of that. And at the time, I just didn't have the time. We were shipping an MMO. I was too busy. But I said, I tell you what I'm going to do. Um, you call me a consultant. I'm happy to like answer emails and questions. And I wrote basically sort of a five or six page, like, here's how you would turn um, Mutant Chronicles into a basic role playing game. And um, he looked at that and he was like, OK. And then I think for various reasons, um, they decided they wanted to come up with their own system. I think Chris yeah. is really into the notion of having a house system for Modifius and which is great. Um, yeah. So he. Uh, 
he then said, okay, well, we're going to go with uh, this new system 2D20. And then um, there was something that some reason he asked me about a Cthulhu thing. And I said, yeah, I, I love Cthulhu. And he said, would you like to write something for Octung Cthulhu? And I said, sure. And so we had a very long conversation about that, where my first work with them was taking um, pieces of manuscripts that a whole bunch of other authors had written for the assault on the mountains of madness. And I turned that into a, um, I mean, Chris described it as, oh, it's just basically like filling in spackle between these bricks that are already there. And I mean, it, it wasn't at all. There were massive sections missing. The tones were completely different between sections. You know, one writer had written his section all with like little can text. The characters go into a thing. This is what you read out loud to them. Some people had nothing else. There was no recurring villain. There were no <laughs> major characters involved. And there was no like through story. Yeah. So and um, also, you know, the first thing was just, oh, and here the characters are at Antarctica. And I was like, well, how do they get there? And Chris said, oh, I had this idea for this uh, barge made out of piecrete, which is this sort of frozen uh, sawdust. And I said, well, how do we make that interesting? And so from then on, it just became, you know, what was basically like six or seven pieces of chapters um, became this epic 300 page um, campaign. Wow. Where I had to write. And it, yeah, it had no ending as well, which was <laughs> like it just sort of described the ending city, you know, the city of the elder things as um, and it was just there. And I was like, well, what are they trying to do? You know how? OK, wow. they're trying to do something. I get what they're trying to do. But are there any NPCs? What's happening here? So I ended up writing all of that. Wow. And I, I feel like I probably ran roughshod over the other authors and I apologize to them. And if any of them present me with the grievance, I will happily buy them a round of drinks. But, um, <laughs> you know, so that I did that. And then um, midway through, Chris asked me, he said, you know, I can't can't say for sure, but do you have any interest in Conan? And I was like, I have been interested in Conan since I was a wee boy. Yeah, <laughs> like literally yeah. from, I think I, I hit Conan from watching the Tarzan TV series with uh, mm. Ron Eli mm -hmm. to reading the Edgar Rice Burroughs book and then just working my way down the library shelf and it went Burroughs and then I found a Lynn Carter Conan. Oh. I, I know. But anyway, I was like, fortunately for me, Carter followed Burroughs quite closely right. and I pick it up and there's a savage looking black haired guy holding a knife fighting something on the cover. And I'm like, all right, this looks like the same kind of stuff. And then I, yeah, like, wow. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, then when the project came together, I was involved at the very earliest uh, stages. Um, originally, there was a different line editor who um, uh, was unable to continue because I don't think he was really ready for that. And then there was another line editor after that who I um, just didn't work out. And then on my birthday, um, Chris called me up. He didn't know it was my birthday, but he called me up and asked me if I was willing to take on the line. And I said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and that led to seven years of, uh, not seven years, I think all in all about five years total from the prep up to the Kickstarter. And then the four years after the Kickstarter releasing 20 some books, um, 
It's amazing. Uh, so much stuff. And I mean, I know that many of the Kickstarter backers feel like it, it took forever, but um, work was done. I mean, I, I can't think of days where I, I didn't do something related to that game. And the fact that I have literally half a bookshelf full of that is I, I'm not even sure that any other game has ever released so much content in such a short time. It's 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 pretty crazy. And we had Lynn Hardy on. Um, and, you know, the one thing that she was talking about with Octung, um, similar, you know, it took some time, right, to get all of get all of Octung out there. And, and she made a comment and, and Chris has been on the show, but she made a comment, you know, that Chris is like, you know, it's going to come out when it's ready. And it's and, and, and if it's not ready, then it's not coming out. Um, so, uh, did you encounter that, um, with Conan as well, or was there a lot of, lot of things in play that, um, that created that? There's a, there's a word in Germany that's sort of a, a combination of the word ja, which is yes, and nine, which is no, and it's <laughs> ja ein, where I would say that, yes, it very initially, it was, um, uh, very much a, uh, a case of, yes, the books are going to take some time. Let's get them done. Yeah. Um, but of course, as things go on, you know, you've got, I mean, we broke up the shipping into three different uh, shipments and that just, you, you end up with just a nonstop um, uh, chorus of Kickstarter backers who are feeling angry and yeah. they feel betrayed because of the way the Kickstarter was broken up, we allowed people to pick when they, when the books were shipped and many of the more hardcore backers shipped all at once and mm -hmm. which meant that not a single book wasn't going out into them until all the books were done right and so you know i mean i would have loved if we had so we were releasing pdfs all the time but i think people really wanted their physical copies and yeah. so i think there was a um it started out a little more relaxed in terms of well we're going to get the books done and then after each wave, there was a little bit of breathing room, but there was an ongoing concern pressure. and a, a yeah. pressure to get it out. And the, at no point did I feel like we just had the luxury of time. I mean, I've always viewed, even though Modif, uh, Modifius is fiscally secure and mm -hmm. um, doing quite well and firing on all fronts, I mean, there's a certain issue where you get a you do a Kickstarter that makes a lot of money. Yep. And you have this pile of money and then a timer happens and it's exactly. like an hourglass and sand is yep. just dropping out all the time. And your goal is to get to the end of the process before the final grains of sand have fallen out of that. And sometimes and nobody's you know, pouring sand at the top, right? It's no. Just <laughs> uh, well, I mean, now that seems to be something that people do do, which I find amazing that people yeah. are, you know, they'll do a project and Kickstarter and then they'll go to game on tabletop and do a second round of funding or whatnot but that wasn't really an option for uh yeah. conan and you know the project takes time um it uh i think that we approached it with a level of um dedication and craft that is um pretty solid but the other thing too is that recruiting for people to write conan is really specific i mean it requires a certain tone and yeah. a certain knowledge of that world that most you you can't just pick up and run with. That's you really need yeah. to uh, be sort of immersed in that setting. And so I found a lot of recruiting for the game was really challenging. Yeah, I, would, I would imagine you could smell the inauthenticity real quick, right? Oh, if, absolutely. If you had the right, yes. wrong person. I yeah. mean, I there was a point where we did an open call for adventure pitches, and I think you know seven out of eight were rejected. Just yeah. like nope not not in yep. tone and 
you know, I'd occasionally, I occasionally, I wrote an essay in the book called How to Write Adventures the Robert E. Howard Way, which I think is a pretty solid piece of advice, at least for giving, I mean, you would think that it would say, hey, this is what we're looking for. And, uh, you know, when I would get into arguments with, uh, with these uh, writers about some of the adventures, I was like, I don't understand why this is happening. Generally, yeah. Conan stories, there's always a clear and coherent narrative. Things don't just happen. Yeah. And so um, so it was a little uh, uh, challenging there. But overall, it was a great experience. At, at that point, Jason, was that the biggest thing that you had been responsible for? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the basic role playing rule book was, um, you know, this massive uh, um, nearly 400 page or some, something like that, like 380 or so giant um condensed version of all of the different uh basic role-playing system um variants with all these optional rules and yet the whole thing was the idea was you could take that book and then run pretty much any campaign of any sort right. you wanted to you could just cobble it together and that thing took two and a half years i ran a big play test with about 150 people many of whom are now good close friends and That's you know good. i mean like Sarah Newton, her first game development, she popped up and said, hey, I'd love to be a part of this BRP uh, playtest. And I said, I would love any help I can get. And so <laughs> she was one of the the just most amazing contributors to that. And um, and yeah, I mean, that would that had been the largest up to then. Um, and then, you know, the Conan core book was bigger than basic role playing. And then the following 19 books plus maps plus. Oh those um and i mean i'm still working indirectly on conan stuff so um you know all of these various bits and pieces i'm just looking down on their geometric tile sets and the gm pack and all of that kind of it's stuff. amazing so much it's a, so yeah. much stuff yeah and it's and not to blow smoke but it's, it's pretty damn good jason well, thanks. i mean yeah it, it, it it's really really good and one of the things that i like about the 2d20 system and what uh mr birch is doing with it is i love how um similar to what free league does with the year zero right it, it's not the same in every one of their games right but it's familiar but it's adapted so 2d20 and star trek is not the same as 2d20 and conan but it, it fits and right, they, right. they've done a real brilliant job with that i think um yeah uh, and I mean, if we were to design a second edition of Conan, we might approach it with, you know, we might do some things differently based sure. on what we've learned. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely no question. So, guys, we're going to take one last break. When we get back from that break, we're going to get to modern day. <laughs> we've right. been talking about everything leading up here. I'm going to talk to uh, Jason about what exactly a creative director at Chaosium does. And then more importantly, I want to spend time talking about RuneQuest. We'll be right back. Oh, uh, hey, it's me. Um, I'm interrupting this episode, and I hope you're enjoying it, and I bet you're anxious to hear the rest. But before we jump back, I need a favor. Do you know someone who might enjoy this episode? Can you shoot them a quick message or maybe even send them a link to it? Listeners sharing this podcast was the primary reason we almost doubled our audience last year. Also, would you like to see and hear these games in action? Go to the Third Floor Wars YouTube channel and Twitch stream. Our actual plays combine compelling role-playing, character-driven action, and system tutorials. We create great stories while lifting the hood and showcasing the game mechanics. Links to both are in the show notes. Okay, last thing, and I mean it. 
Have you rated this podcast on your pod platform yet? Maybe even written a short review? It is a simple way for you to be even more awesome than you already are. Okay, now I'm done. Let's jump back and listen to the rest of this episode. So creative director for RuneQuest and BRP is an impressive title, Jason. Um, I assume when you wake up in the morning, there's there's uh, horns that go off and um, <laughs> it's confetti that comes down. Um, but in reality, what exactly does that mean? So so when you wake up in the morning and start work for the day, what, what does that even look like? Well, um, I live in a busy city street in Berlin, and so, yes, there are horns in the morning. It's usually just a big garbage truck and people honking, get out of the way, garbage truck. Oh, that's um, funny. Uh, so, yeah, I'm usually up pretty early. Um, well, um, I don't know. I mean, at a certain point, I think I'm creative director of uh, BRP stuff, and RuneQuest ultimately is Jeff Richards's baby. I mean, gotcha. he is the master, the, the con, the grand and Poobah of Glorantha. And so mm -hmm. my primary focus with that is getting books done, you know, contributing to uh, coordinating writers, shotgunning to make sure that everybody gets their stuff done um, and bringing the books all together so that everything happens. Jeff is the, I would say, the division is Jeff is more the creative side and I'm more the director. Got it. Got <laughs> and it. So if that makes sense, um, it if does. it has anything to do with uh, Glorantha as a whole, then that's, that's really Jeff's call. He's been living in that world for far longer and far deeper than I have. And so um, I frequently have to defer to him with questions of, Hey, does this make sense to you? Is this something you would see in uh, Glorantha? Is this, you know, or is this a little more Bronze Age or a little too advanced? And so um, so Jeff does that. But basically every morning I spend, you know, a couple of hours just going through emails, looking at art, um, sending out art briefs, reviewing contracts, replying to emails on all of the various projects. Um, and then a lot of actual copy editing. I usually, I try to get... Um, you know, a proofreader and a copy editor for each project, but there are certain projects that I feel that I need to be the one who does that. And so there's a large portion of my day is spent actually just reviewing text, going yeah. over stuff. And I'm one of these people because I have my desktop publishing background. Um, I can open up InDesign and make corrections to the actual files and, um, you know, in some cases, even rough stuff out for our layout people to um, or you know, draw extraordinarily primitive maps and send them. I try, I mean, this is a secret, but I, I try to make my maps and my mockups as primitive as possible because I want to make sure that, you know, the, um, the creative personnel feel like they can contribute something, but also so that they don't get influenced by, right. you know, they don't look at that and they go, oh, he wants something that looks mostly like that. Whereas if I draw something clearly crude and primitive, they go, okay, I can, I can, as they say in Germany, put my mustard on that, um, <laughs> meaning to, you know, I can add myself into this project. And so right. I, I want people to feel that they are um, creatively invested in the work that they do rather than just sort of, you know, a tool that the creative powers that be uh, use to get things done. 
That makes sense. Now, uh, Jeff's on my hit list. And I hope to have Jeff on the show at some point. But really, your perspective, Jason, is kind of interesting to me right now uh, for RuneQuest because your hands are all over it, right? So you're touching a lot of things. You're seeing things getting made. You're putting things together and stuff. Um, but there's a little bit of an outsider, right? If Jeff is really, you know, on top of the creative piece of it, the mystery for me with RuneQuest, because this RuneQuest was not part of my journey as a role player, okay. um, but like Pendragon, it keeps coming up. So as I as I'm talking to creatives and I'm talking to designers, somehow RuneQuest keeps coming up. RuneQuest, RuneQuest. And I'd be curious, Jason, if you have a sense in the same way that you did a great job with Pendragon. What is it about RuneQuest that so many designers say that was a part of me? That was a part of who I became? Well, um, in many ways, it is uh, uh, the strengths of RuneQuest are similar to the strengths of um, Pendragon in that they are both the um, both collaborative works, but also they are um, driven by the creative. I mean, I would say Greg Stafford is a creative genius or was a creative genius. Um, He is um, I I I think arguably he was one of the finest uh, creative minds in game development thus far um and it is uh humbling to work you know on projects that he uh created um and you know as uh as john wick is fond of saying anytime you came you think you came up with a really cool idea or a mechanic greg stafford probably came up with it 25 years ago and (laughs) it's there somewhere yeah um (laughs) and so uh so yeah, and RuneQuest in some ways, like I said, it um, it sort of has this weird um, combination, this gestalt of uh, Steve Perrin's very um, uh, simulationist um, mechanics with strike ranks, with basic, um, you know, with sort of like taking your stats and figuring your skill category bonuses and hit points per location, this real gritty, visceral combat um, mechanic where, you know, you're feeling like I could die at any moment. Yeah. And then marrying that to this kind of crazy bronze age, mythological trippy setting where there are intelligent baboons and elves grow from trees and dwarves are part of a world machine, you know, and eat canned food. And, you know, (laughs) I mean, just this, just completely trippy stuff that, um, is like unlike anything else you've seen in or anyone had seen in games. And that was, uh, I think, the real liberation that um, uh, RuneQuest did for as much as Pendragon was on point in evoking that um, that sense of, you know, chivalric Arthurian um, both behavior and combat and um, adventure. RuneQuest was in like just completely this sort of the sky is the limit in what you can Mm. do in this world. You know, there are all kinds of crazy things, the gods and the cults. I mean, that was something that, um, you know, you'd never really seen. I mean, when you created a character in D&D, you picked a god. Maybe you had stats for them. So if you could fight them. (laughs) (laughs) And you kind of knew their alignment and some stuff, but and maybe there was some special thing about that god, but um, but there wasn't a lot more than that. But this whole idea about like your 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 character starting out as being a member of this cult that uh, is influential throughout the world, and um, everyone being part of a cult, everyone using magic, 
and you 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 know like i say uh, a phrase i have uh, used probably far too many times as i say the thing about runequest is the characters have their feet in the mud and their head in the heavens yeah you know they're they are literally getting into fights where any you know like just a little troll can can use a sling stone and kill the mightiest of uh, characters in one blow if the you know if they manage to roll a critical and hit them in the head or whatnot right and yet at the same time these characters have these like you know they're kind of on these crazy hero quests trippy journeys into other alternate realities and you know the gods themselves are manifesting in them when they they use their runic powers and so i think that that um which just like Wow. I mean, you, you can't. <laughs> I mean, if you look at chivalry and sorcery, even Dragon Quest, Dungeons and Dragons, the fantasy trip, Tunnels and Trolls, and you put them all in a row and then you set RuneQuest next to them, it's pretty obvious that RuneQuest is just a completely different thing. Yeah. And that is. Um, I think uh, just, you know, it's it's something that's trying for something uh, far grander and far that's more cool. uh, far more epic than um, and that is not to to give any of those other games any slight or throw oh, shade no. on them. Yeah, but yeah. to just say that it's clear that the ambitions of RuneQuest were uh, creatively, uh, I think, um, energizing. Yeah. Yeah, that well, that helps a lot considerably. So let's talk about BRP just for a little bit, um, Jason, uh, because here your hands are a lot dirtier, right? Uh, you're a lot more involved in that. Blood up um, to my elbows. Yeah. So, you know, for me, the world that I left 20 years ago, it was uh, the Hero System Champions GURPS. And, and mm -hmm. that's really where role playing was, was pushing more towards that. And then, of course, you have Savage Worlds, another universal type system. Um when you're presented with BRP, where do you find space for that as another universal system? What makes BRP so loved? I mean, that's the one thing I can say about that is you ask somebody about BRP and you never get a nobody ever says it's OK. It's either I've never looked at it or, oh, my God, this game is amazing. Or um, they hate it. <laughs> and I haven't talked to the haters yet. Oh, okay. They exist. <laughs> they, I'm sure they Bless do. I'm sure they let you know. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, in your mind, like, so where does BRP fit in that, that universal ecosystem? Well, um, I think that, that ultimately, like, BRP is the ultimate toolkit game um, yeah. because the, the sheer, uh, the resolution mechanic of the D100, the flat distribution system, it, it is transparent. I mean, it is incredibly easy to see what happens when you add something onto it. And I would say as a chassis, it is, it's got hard points all over it that you could just bolt all kinds of crap on to get into a, uh, a sort of try to stretch that metaphor a little farther. Yeah. Um, like you can just decide you can dial it up. You can double hit points. You can, um, you can have hit points per location. You can um, add superpowers to it. You can, um, you can add psychic powers. You can add mutations. I mean, you could take them away. You could run it in a pulp uh, milieu with very few tweaks. And um, yeah. And I think that that ultimately is very appealing for people who like to to sort of kit bash a little bit. And I think the what I would say, just the genius about the mechanic is, is that it's incredibly intuitive. Mm. I mean, I I mean, 
I do understand quite a bit about statistics and sometimes I have to break them down to people and, you know, tell, but for example, many people don't understand how bell curve, um, works and, you know, so, um, when you're making, when you're rolling 2d6 and adding something and subtracting something, or you're rolling a dice pool, um, mm-hmm. those numbers are not always obvious. Um, you know, if anything, I would think that, um, I mean, if I, I, I would say one of the things I find sometimes challenging about working with uh, 2d20, for example, right. is that probability success is not always evident because, yep. you know, you, we've got some tables in the background where I can sort of look and say, okay, if you're rolling four die six at this number, this is your chance. And what are four die 20 at this number. Mm-hmm. But um, for the most part, I think BRP is just, um, it just pulls the curtain aside and shows you the engine and you can sort of look at it and you can add on your stuff. You can pull stuff away. You can decide to run RuneQuest combat. I mean, you could take the core rule book and then just decide, oh, I'm going to just do without strike ranks. Everybody <laughs> gets one attack per round. Yeah. You know, and the game runs. I mean, it, right. it, you might need to make some little adjustments on the fly. But it runs. And yeah. I think that that is really a testament to um, how uh, how solid it is. And that I think is, like I say, both the the marriage of Glorantha with RuneQuest is exciting. And um, we haven't really talked about Call of Cthulhu, but I think in that's another one of these weird, perfect pairings of system and mechanics, because um you know, I, this is both Greg and Sandy working on this, but I think that Lovecraft's uh, cold scientific universe, which is basically a science fiction horror universe, mm-hmm. the flat mechanical, the pitiless mechanic <laughs> of D100 yeah. is perfect for feeling like you're alone in a vast and uncaring universe, like Interesting. The, the mythos. Yeah. You know? And so that is, I think, you know, one of the, I think there's a gestalt where people who like RuneQuest also like Call of Cthulhu, who also like Pendragon and all of these games kind of, they, they sort of stick together and I, you have the warm fuzzies. I mean, would I love (laughs) Stormbringer as much if I didn't have those other three or four or five games, you know, floating around in the back burner? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So as I would imagine you're in the running for playing the most games of BRP or at least uh, being a part of the most games. Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) So what I would be interested as we wrap up, Jason, is there certain settings or moments that you can think of within playing within the ecosystem of BRP that really stick out um, some favorites of you. It doesn't make it better or worse in, in the, in the greater sense, but for Jason, where do you really love to play BRP? Um, I, I really, I'm having just a hellaciously fun time with the Lords of the Middle Sea game that we're playtesting right now. Um, where the characters are basically, they they are the crew of an airship, a semi-rigid dirigible, flying around over a sunken North America in the year 26-something. It's a little wow. vague. Um, and, you know, it's got a little bit of, um, uh, you know, uh, a canticle for Leibowitz, a little bit of Mad Max, a little bit of, um, you know, this sort of this future where a little bit of serenity you know, where there's both this upbeat, um, like things are changing, but at the same time you have all these warlords striving for power in this political game and the players are just basically trying to get paid 
and enjoy life. And um, that has been an absolute joy to run. The playtest actually began um, as the pandemic kicked in. Wow. And so we've I have never to this day actually played a tabletop version of it. It's only been entirely virtual. Um, and all the playtesting has been uh, online with uh, various groups. I've done some demos and some secret little one shots and playtested some things. And then we've got the house campaign, which is I'm going to be playing in like three hours. Um, oh, fun. Um, that has been epic. Um, Stormbringer also just the sheer craziness. I mean, once you start figuring out a uh, demon summoning in Stormbringer, <laughs> everything goes nuts. Um and early RuneQuest experiences playing, uh, I wasn't the game master of it, um, but, you know, just playing a group of hard scrabble, um, sort of uh, just people trying to get by, living on the edges of Pavis, going into the rubble periodically to, to see what we could get was just tremendous fun. Um, and so those are the kinds of things I, I really enjoyed. Um, I wish we had gotten to play more uh, ElfQuest and um, RingWorld, but um, for various just life reasons, those games didn't really uh, stick the way that others did. But um, mm -hmm. but no, I, I think those are amazing. And then, you know, every so often I'll just dust off one of these older games and run it. Um, there's a semi-local convention here in Germany called the Kraken. And... Um, last the last time we had a face-to-face -face or that i was at it was two years ago and i i ran a game of elric which was nice. um it was basically shamelessly ripping off escape from new york um and you know robin laws was one of my players and he just went no kidding. it was quite fun um <laughs> and so you know it was one of those where just everything went a little nuts and yeah uh, Oh, yeah, that's fun. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I, you know, like I said, um, I think that the the combination of rules and setting um, really are epic. And I have this weird habit where I about once every Kraken, I come up with a couple of games that are just one shots that are just some crazily influenced um I run them almost entirely um, free form in that I don't generally have a I have a rough outline of what I'm going to do. Right. All of the work is spent just making character sheets and I use the big gold book as the guideline. I did one that was like a sort of um, Mesopotamian science fiction game, sort of uh, shamelessly ripping off Lord of Light. Um, I've done a crazy post-apocalyptic weird universe game that um you know was a little gamma worldy but a little more epic than that i've done mm -hmm. a big space opera style thing and um yeah every year i find that it's just a lot of fun to just bring um uh bring brp in and just take it for its run you know take That's it awesome. for a sprint or a course around the track so to yeah. speak now, um, the last thing I'll ask, and I ask this of all my guests, um, and sometimes the answer is, Craig, I don't have time. Do you, is there anything out there that you're not involved with that you didn't have your fingers in that, that, that you're enjoying or excited about? And that could be another role-playing system, another role-playing setting. It could be a board game, video games. I'd be curious when Jason is not doing your job, is there stuff where you, like, that, that right now that you're just excited about and really enjoying? Oh, absolutely. Um, the campaign that I'm running with my local friends, we've just gotten into the face-to-face -face meetups uh, in the past uh, 
uh, month and a half since Germany has sort of relaxed its uh, uh, restrictions on social mm-hmm. gatherings. We meet at a beer garden um, every other Sunday afternoon, and we've been terrible. playing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we've been playing Spire, which oh. is um, really fun. And, They've been uh, on know, the show the, too. That's yeah, a crazy game. The, the <laughs> system works for everyone. It's very light. It's very fun. Yep. Um, and I have no connection whatsoever with anyone other than giving them money to yeah. give me awesome game books. I just picked up Heart, and we'll probably do a delve into the Heart below the Spire at some point. Um, I have a um, I have a shelf that is uh, probably about. Um, two and a half feet of um uh free elegon stuff i mean the whole mutant year zero universe i love those i ran a coriolis campaign for um i think we got about 28 sessions or so into that um and we did the whole we did a bunch of solo uh or rather starting adventures and then we did the first of the emissary lost campaign and um then that we just wrapped that up and we're taking a breather for a while we may go yeah. back to it depends on how the players feel and then i loved running Veosan, which has been an absolute delight um no and i mean uh one of my favorite pickup games i discovered online was um barbarians of lemuria just because it's so that. simple it's yeah. it's like a barbaric crunch but very little in the way of crunchy mechanics and so um it was a lot of fun to run, and um, I find that when I'm running stuff online, I tend to uh, go for a simpler mechanical. So I'm just yeah. looking at my games now to see, you know, obviously we could spend a lot of hours. Um, but another game that I have no involvement w- whatsoever, but I love quite dearly is, um, I shouldn't say game, is, is Tecumel. Um, I've been a fan of Tecumel ever since the um, hearing about it back in Dragon Magazine in the uh, 70s, you know, the late 70s. I'm not familiar with it. Oh, wow. Uh, Tecumel was like, I'm not sure if it was the second or the third um, D&D setting. It oh, is a okay. um, alternate. Um, uh, so it dates back to like 70 five or so uh-huh. um it was already in existence before there was D as a setting that this um this linguist uh professor m.a.r barker came up with it is a weird fantasy science fiction hybrid set in a sort of a, a vast science fictiony world but has resorted to mostly almost Mesoamerican culture with this sort of highly Baroque Byzantine social structure that um, there are languages. It's epic. It's um, there have been at least six or seven Tecumel games, Empire of the Petal Throne um, and a bunch of others like this. And I to the I think Guardians of Order probably did what I would consider to be the best Tecumel game. But um, to the, my knowledge, but that was a one and done kind of a thing. They, they were unable to uh, continue the line. Um, and uh, I don't think that in my mind, there's been a, uh, a really great Tecumel game, but the setting is amazing. I mean, yeah. there's a, the certain sweet spot is um, science fantasy for me. Like if it's science fantasy, I'm, 
instantly yeah. excited about it, you know, whether it be Tecumel or Jarun or Tales from Gargantir or any of these weird uh, John Carter, Warlord of Mars is yeah. technically just science fiction pulp, but yep. um, it sort of has that same sort of a feeling. So well, there's a huge fantasy piece to, to Carter. There's no question. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, that, that is really my, uh, my sweet spot. And so nice. of all of them, I have zero involvement with Tecumel and yet I have a, a shelf full of Tecumel and um, <laughs> that's awesome. You know, if Chaosium ever uh, decided that they would love to do chaos every so often, I kind of test the waters. I'm like, maybe <laughs> we should talk to the Tecumel people. And no, <laughs> oh, we're already great. too busy. <laughs> yeah. Boy, that's the truth. The stuff that uh, is coming out of that building is is unbelievable oh there um, is no building though we're we're the, completely we are a completely virtual company there, i don't think i realized that no kidding no, no um until jeff um well jeff just moved from berlin uh a month ago um or even less than a month ago a few weeks ago and um I think as far as I know he and i were the only two chaosium employees to live in the same city isn't that something? Yeah. And I, I only met him after I moved here. Um, huh. You know, I had no idea who he was other than I knew that he I knew him by name, but that was it. And didn't know he lived in Berlin or anything like that until one of my basic role playing playtesters put us in touch with each other. But yeah, um, I don't think any I mean, Mike, the 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 Call of Cthulhu crowd is mostly in England. And mm-hmm. um, I I don't think any two chaos employees live in the same it's city amazing. it's it's, it's a amazing. little crazy yeah it is crazy especially when you consider uh the amount of quality um well that, uh, still chaosium um is associated with um and continues it was that was <laughs> that was true 25 years ago when i was role playing and, and i was happy when i came back and just just saw uh, not only the quality was the same but how many more games had fallen under the umbrella um mm. since i had been gone um, boy, Jason, I uh, can't thank you enough, my friend. This was this was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I, I had a great time chatting with I'm, you. I'm glad. I'm glad. So if somebody wants to get more Jason, if they're listening right now, where are some places they can go? Um, just, um, you know, you can always hit me up on Facebook or whatnot. I don't uh, really use Twitter that much. But you would go to either chaosium.com um, and poke around in the RuneQuest section. Um, ask any, join any of the RuneQuest groups on Facebook. I, I tend to participate in those quite a bit. Um, the uh, um, I'm also doing work on the the Dune RPG for uh, Modifius. Um, and so I, I spend a little bit of my time doing that. And yeah. I need to do more, but uh, there's only so much time in the day. And um, and then I'm a member of several of the, the 2D20 Conan groups and whatnot. And so it's not hard to look me up or to find me. And I, you know, I'm at Jason at Chaosium.com. If anybody feels like dropping me a line to ask about, like, I want to write for you or whatnot. Um you know, hopefully I haven't said anything that terrifies people about the uh, the prospect <laughs> of working with me. No, you haven't. I've had Peterson on the phone. You're, you, you, oh, okay. If anybody's going to terrify anybody, it's Sandy. Oh. <laughs> um, well, this is fantastic, Jason. At some point, I might have to trick you into coming on again. Um, but sure. uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, you know who else I appreciate? I appreciate you for listening this long, the whole time. Thanks for listening. Take care. We hope you
episode, subscribe to Tabletop Talk and share it with your friends. Check out our content on YouTube and Twitch. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stay updated on everything coming from Third Floor. All the links are in the show notes. Take care, floorheads. You still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over, but if you're bored, why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway. Thanks for sticking around. Take care.